Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. With the magic formula of these steps, with the magic words of this book, I remember getting sent to jail one time for a federal offense, and I was starting to age out of the juvenile justice system and age up into the adult penal system. And um, it's not like that was enough. Why do we think there's going to be an automatic enough? We don't even have it enough when we're first sober. Oh, when that man hurts her bad enough, she'll leave. No, we find a new level and just keep going. That's how it goes. So, like, adult prison wasn't going to scare me enough to stop me. I didn't like the idea. I think I have undiagnosed Tourette's, so I wasn't going to go down so well. But, I mean, I could run those juvie joints, but, you know, whatever. But I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. And every time I'd go up against the same judge, it was a small town, so unfair. And he'd say to me, Paul, I thought you said you weren't going to drink again. And I'd shrug my shoulders because when you're cool, that's what you do in, in, in court. But if I would have been constitutionally capable of being honest, what I would have said is the truth. When he said to me, I thought you said you weren't going to drink again, I'd have said, me too. Me too. Every time I said I'm not going to do it again, I meant it. I wanted to save my mother, and now I was the one breaking her. And I was court-mandated to go to AA meetings since I was 14 years old. Let's set that scene. 1976, Grand Island, Nebraska. It doesn't even have an island, so they're lying. (laughs) Corn and cows. That's what they have. I think they're calling the silo an island, just so they can be all that. But... So I had to go to those meetings, man. I was never all the way sober. Three years of being court-mandated to go to AA meetings since I, until I finally got sober when I was 17. And uh, So I'd never be all the way sober. And I knew my mom had been there talking to those people about the things I had done. They were all her friends. They loved her so much. So I remember, again, I don't know how memory works like this. It's as if I'm standing there right now, man. I'm walking down those steps of that meeting, and and my fists are raised, man, because I'm waiting for the fight. I know they're going to come for me, and I'm ready to come on back. You know what they met me with? Kindness and love. And right now, man, I can see that man who was like the, you know, the big man in AA at the time, and... I know they don't have that anymore, but <laughs> not that I care. But uh, but uh, anyway, um, I can see him right now crossing the whole room of people with his hand outstretched, coming to me with a smile on his face, me, like I was a person or something. <laughs> And that is the reason I am your speaker today. To me, AA was just another institution on the road, man. There'd been a creepy man wanting and doing some creepy stuff in every place I'd ever been in. I just thought AA was another stop on the road, but you were safe, man. And and, and I'm sorry I'm crying. I want you to know I am a badass. But anyway... I just thought you were another place, man, but you were safe. I've never seen that. 
can stay for that. And finally, I got sent up to, you know, another play, another place in Sioux City, Iowa. Sharon and I have many connections. That's one of them, but it's weird how many. But oh, we happened to be one of the first treatment centers in the United States, one of the first juvenile treatment centers in the United States, one of the first halfway houses in the United States, and I was still under the ward of the state. My mom took custody of me, custody of me over to the state of Nebraska, second resentment. <laughs> and I could be there for a long time. I could dry out. I, I came to you with brain damage. I came to you feral and savage, a savage girl from a savage place, man. And you took me in. And how I made it is this, man. I lived in AA meetings. I went to the 10 a.m. meeting where I thought coffee mate was a protein source. <laughs> the noon, the 5, the 8, the 10 p.m. And sometimes there were midnight meetings, which are dangerous because they were by candlelight and all guys are cute in the candlelight. And, <laughs> and there's always dental, but... <laughs> And I'd come, come late on purpose because more people look at you that way. And I was always angry. I'd be done gossiping about everybody in the first floor and then come up to the meeting late and wearing clothes that don't belong there, a stripper pole. And, and I'd sit in the back of the room with my arms all crossed, you know. And sober and clean, man, because the only people I knew were in AA. And I'm telling you this right now, I was far more terrified of losing you than I was of going back to prison. And you were a light-filled source. And I understand, I understand profoundly that the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is not a replacement for alcoholism. I do understand, but it is a sufficient replacement for alcohol. And I could stay. Thank God for conferences. Thank God when they had hospitality rooms at conferences, because I was poor, and I, you know, it's the only way I ate. Thank God for AA dances. They had a clubhouse that was open 24 hours. We'd start spades games at 1 in the morning. There were about 40 young people in Sioux City, Iowa, getting sober with me. How does that happen? How does that happen? And even though I'd sit in the back of the room all angry, I could hear you. Us weirdos in the back of the room, we can hear you. Not only that, we are laser-focused on you, particularly how you act when that meeting's over. We're watching yeah, oh, that's not make you nervous. <laughs> but I could hear you. I could hear you quote from the big book where it says, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. And I think, oh, not for me. God had done me wrong. <laughs> but because and only because you had been honorable I could at least believe that you believed, and that was enough. That was enough, even with my brain damage, to get the tip of my big toes onto the broad highway, and you met me there, and I promise you this, there's few things I like lay a hat on, plant a flag on, that here's one thing I know for sure, for sure, that no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter what has been done to you, God and AA will meet you there, take you by the hand, and lead you on the rest of the way. You are the family I never knew. 
I could stay for that. I uh, was, you know, crazy in my first four years of sobriety. I couldn't get a sponsor because no one's as smart as me. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't read the big book because that's for you old people. I was going to write my own cool version and just nuts. I couldn't do the steps. That's for losers. And I mean, just crazy, you know, just crazy. And I, I was full of hate and anger. I hated men. I hated women. So I was lonely. <laughs> But little by little, man, but I wasn't, I wasn't high on, I wasn't on any outside issues. I lived in AA meetings and I could hear you and I could hear you and I could start with my first, second step and that was with this word, maybe, maybe. And that was it. So find your maybe, that's all. That's all it takes. When I was about three years sober, uh, I was working in a nursing home, you know, and, I, you know, again, I couldn't work the steps. Don't remember why, but they're inconvenient. But, um, <laughs> uh, that's how they felt. Uh. <laughs> but there was this resident at this nursing home named Edith, and she was horrible. And she weighed 80 pounds, and she was 82 years old, and her kids had just dumped her there. And she was paralyzed. Half her body was paralyzed, but the side of her mouth that could work cut you down. <laughs> Nobody wanted her. I was 19 years old, and uh, like I said, two, th- two, three years sober, somewhere in there. And so I, I, I went, and I had Edith that night. Oh, uh, no. But I was like gritting my teeth. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be nice. <laughs> have to give her a bath, which is the worst. And so how you get a paralyzed person in his bath is you disrobe them and you like pick them up and put them in a special chair and then you tie them in, you uh, secure them in and then you pump them up and then they go in the air and then you put them down like into this big special bathtub. So Edith is now in the air naked. And I say to myself, what would an old and lowly, bitter woman, I was a young and bitter old woman, but what would an old and lonely and bitter woman want to talk about? She would want to talk about her past. So I said to her, Edith, did you, did you used to be pretty? She said to me, did you? (laughs) And that bitter, lonely old woman became the best friend of this bitter and lonely young woman. I would ask to have her. I'd do her nails. I'd tell her about the man of the week who broke my heart because we'd had two dates and he wasn't going to marry me. (laughs) Kept happening. And that's where I learned about love. That was that, man. Only in God's world. I thought love was six foot nice car, which meant working car. (laughs) Love is broad, broad. Love is that dirty and smelly girl wandering the neighborhood. Love is that dog who needs a home. My husband and I save animals. Of course we do rescues. Of course we do. I can't stand it. I can't stand them when they... 
are in need. Of course I can't. Of course I can't. Because God has found a way to use my dark past even with that. Of course God has. The God is the master at algebra. God is the master formula maker of the universe. God will take our broken selves and use that very break to heal somebody else. How does that work? What kind of math is that? And I've only seen it happen over and over and over. Sometimes I don't know the full answer to a situation. I don't know the full thing, man. My sponsees, you know how they are. That's, and I understand they want an answer. What do I do? Do I leave the job? Do I divorce the man? Do I marry the man? You know, all these answers. And, but I'm not their God. So when I ask them is, did you pray? Because I really want to know. I want to know where the God that lives deep within inside them wants us to go next. I need to know that. I'm sponsored by the fabulous Miss Polly Pistol. I think I'm her protector bulldog. She does not think that. I do, so it doesn't matter. But um, she has taught me love and shoulder to shoulder and eyeball to eyeball and knee to knee, no matter what. My father appeared back in my life. And he offered to put me through college, undergrad, and I had barely graduated high school. I had to have two senior years of high school. My first, my second senior year of high school was my first year of sobriety. That's a lot of numbers. I graduated 382nd out of a class, a class of 384. I remember when I got the list, I wasn't on the first page. And they, it's so rude, they put the name and the class ranking together. And so I'm turning the page, turning the page, and I get to the last page, and there I am at 382, and I look down at 383 and 384, and I think, God, they must be dumb. <laughs> I got a four on my ACT, a four, a four. One mistake I know I made upon reflection is where it says name, I put ACT. These people are stupid. <laughs> but I went to underground, I found a school back in Nebraska that would take people like me in a little tiny old town in Nebraska, in Kearney, Nebraska, and uh, home of the Kearney State Antelopes, go Lopers. <laughs> Somebody could have pretended to be from there. Something. <laughs> Go Lopers! <laughs> All right. Thank you for that. <laughs> Liars. <laughs> so, at four years of sobriety, I start undergrad and. I started undergrad when I was four years sober. I finished when I was eight years sober. I triple majored. I graduated on the honor roll. Uh, I fell in love with academia. And um, that is the least of the miracles that happened in this small town. The most important thing that happened is I fell in love with the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in the nick of time. Particularly with the fourth step and most particularly with the fourth column of the fourth, of the fourth step because honorable you had told me there was a chance for freedom and peace even for me. And it was to be found in that fourth column. So I started the work. And slowly, God is in charge of what God reveals. And I know we say there's only one step we do perfectly. Yes, first step. We perfectly do not take a drink one day at a time. But there is about a minute in that step seven. We, we are perfectly willing for God to remove these defects of character. But if God has use for them, they're not going to go. And I just got to say, all right, here we go. 
I have outside issues. They don't belong in an AA conference in an AA meeting, but I'm the only one with the microphone, so I'm going in, but... I just want to say I'm a traditions woman too, so we're not going to, you know, hover there. But I'm going to say them because it might help somebody. So here we go. So um, I have a post-traumatic stress disorder. I have tics to this day because of my stress disorder, and I have depression. Okay, we're okay, everybody. <laughs> so, <clears throat> why even bring them up is this. I, I stopped keeping them secret, you know, I mean, to my AA friends, to my outside AA friends, and to everybody. Uh, but I remember I was about 20 years sober, and what would happen is, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't control when they come or go. I don't control their intensity. But so one of them would come, and uh, someone would call. They say, "Hey, you want to meet tonight?" I go, "No, man. The dark is here. Ooh, I, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna hang this out in bed. I'll see you on the other side, man." They call, and the anxiety had come. I, like, I was disassociating, and well, you, you know, I, I'm just saying. After the, I'm not. I'm just saying the, how it rolls, and. They say, you know, you want to come out? You want to go to this thing? I'm, no, man, it's come. Man. I'm not even in the room. and I'm just going to stay in bed till, till, I, till I'll see you on the other side. And God said to me at about 20 years sober, hey, you can help somebody. So I got my seriously fat behind <laughs> out of bed because I can help somebody no matter what. Now, there's a speaker who hates what I'm about to say. He even got up one time after I said it when it was his turn to share and corrected me. I didn't even notice. <laughs> anyway. But it, I don't know what we think we're doing here if we don't think we're in the very business of saving lives. Now let me tell you this. Obviously, that doesn't mean any of us. Nobody, of course, has the power to save lives. Obviously, we don't. What we have are the tools to save lives. So what I realized when God said, get out of bed no matter what, even with your, if you're ticking off the chain, it doesn't matter. Get out of bed. You can help somebody. I realized right there that dying people do not care if I'm ticking. <laughs> Going in no matter what. Another amazing thing that happened in this little tiny college town when I was about four or five years sober, this uh, old-timer named Pat had 32 years of sobriety. Now, you remember when you had like four or five years, somebody with 32 years like Moses. (laughs) (laughs) And he and his wife, Bess, would drive us around to tiny little town AA meetings where the only people in those meetings were old ranchers, old farmers, old railroad men. So you did not go in there and be talking about your inner child. No, no, did not work. The thing about Pat is a uh, great man, a great man. He worked out of a second edition and he had had a resentment since his first year of sobriety and he would tell you what the clubhouse manager had done and 32 years later he still wouldn't go back to that meeting. Another thing about Pat is uh, he had been a World War II uh, veteran, soldier in World War II on the Western Front and, and I'm a historian. Uh, my specialization is the life-changing, if the word goes to he- world goes to hell, you want me on your team, medieval British history, yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Which you will never find a help-wanted ad, wanted Brit- mid- medieval British history, no, no. So if you want a job, no. If you want to be good at trivia, yes. <laughs> Expensive. <laughs> Expensive. But anyway... 
So because I have a second specialization in World War II, it doesn't matter, she's to the point of the story in Pat. So Pat would tell me stories, horror stories, of things he had seen moving across the Western Front landing in France and pushing in, man, horror stories. And he'd end every story with this, but Paula, there's one thing I'll never tell. I was like, what the heck more could he have seen that he won't say? What is he not saying? And a year later, me and my little friend graduated undergrad. We moved to the East Coast, and we got a call that Pat, with 32 years of sobriety, had started drinking. He was dead in a year. And I got that call. I put down the phone, and I turned to my friend. I said, Pat is drinking. She said, you know what it was? It was that resentment. I said, you know what it was? It was that secret. Now I have my graduate degree in history, and I've wondered all these years, what is that thing? What is that thing he would not say? And I can say in graduate school, there was research released to us on World War II, firsthand accounts of World War II. There are things I read I wish I had not read. There are horrible things I know I wish I did not know always looking for that thing he would not say. Now I know. I would bet every dollar I have and I would win the bet that the thing that Pat would not say is not something that he saw. It was something that he did. And the shame and the hate and the secret took 32 years to kill such a man if you think you don't have to fully disclose, if you think you don't have to tell your secrets, you don't stand a chance. But here's the entire gig on telling your secret. I understand. It looks like, it seems like the point is you tell your secret, you get free. Yeah, great, great. But that's not even the point. The point is this. Your secret will save a life, guaranteed. Work it through this formula. Lift it up to the God of the universe. And God will take it and create it and change it and put somebody right in your path. And it will happen sooner than you think you're ready for every time. When I was about 18 years sober, uh, St. Richard and I um, <laughs> lost a baby that we wanted very much. And uh, my mother died that same month. <sighs> I'm not proud of what I'm about to tell you, of course, but I'm not embarrassed either because it might help you. I started hemorrhaging at home, and I was losing too much blood, and the, the emergency room was trying to talk me into going in there to get a transfusion, but there was about a minute lying in that bed that I thought, this isn't a bad way to go. But I was a member of a home group, and they were not having any of that. <laughs> they barged on through the door, which meant knocking. But anyway, St. <laughs> Rick let them in, and they were dropping off food for my two older sons. And coming up, they, I remember one, man, she came on up. I didn't want her there. I hadn't even brushed my hair. And 
She sat on the bed and she took me by the hand. She talked me into getting up and going to get a transfusion. And I did. And two weeks later, I was, you know, ready to walk a little bit. My home group, they said, come back, come back. We'll come get you. We'll find you a really great chair to sit in. And two weeks after all that, man, I live where the University of Illinois is. Like I said, we have a lot of visitors in our meetings. And so I go to the meeting two weeks after losing a baby and my mom. And and I'm sitting in there and they start the meeting and they say, are there any visitors here tonight? And this young man raises his hand. He says, yeah, I'm so-and-so, and I'm here in town because my mother just died, and I don't know how to get through it sober. I said, I do. That's how we do. That's how God does. And even though I had done so many like award-winning four steps, <laughs> <laughs> That organ of hate and pity was still there, man, and I wanted it gone. I perfectly wanted it gone in the seventh step, but it was not gone. You know, it had been chipped away, but man, enough of a thing, which meant like nothing of a thing. And like it would rise, you know, the dark would come or the, or I'd overreact to a thing or, you know, always like that, always like that. And I wanted freedom. You had shown me it's possible and I wanted the freedom, but it wasn't gone. When I was 13 years sober, uh, I met my first husband, not St. Richard, on the AA campus. And it worked out exactly as you would think it would. Everybody said, don't marry him, so I married him. Honestly, uh, I had converted to Catholicism and um, before I met him, and I honestly was thinking about being a nun, but then I got pregnant. about claiming the immaculate thing, but somebody took that story right away from me. But anyway, sorry. Sorry. But, uh, well, I'm not sorry, but I'm just saying I am. But anyway. So I'm 13 years sober, and uh, I'm going in to deliver my our first son, and uh, it was not going well. I was in labor for 36 hours, and my son was stuck in the birth canal, and I had lost too much blood. And they didn't know it, but the cord... The cord was wrapped around his neck. So with every contraction, it was tightening. I was on no drugs, not even a block in my spine, 13 years sober, active and passionate in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. The room emptied of the normal doctor, the normal nurses, the normal equipment, and filled with the specialists. At that moment, I looked to this side of my bed, and walking up to my bed was my grandmother, who had died 10 years before and my friend Craig, who had died of AIDS five months before. I know a little bit of a few languages, enough to just like get by when I'm out of the country, but there's not a word for how that felt. And just perfect, perfect. And because I had lost so much blood, I thought they were there for me, but... They were not there for me. As I'm looking at them, a new nurse came on. I didn't know she was there or anything. She leans down to this side of my bed and she says, Paula, I'm going to get you through this. And to this day, I don't know why I turned and looked at her, but I did. And when I turned back, my grandmother and Craig were gone and she did get me through it. And I delivered my son. (laughs) 
and the room went silent for a long time while they worked on him. And finally they got him breathing, but even I, an inexperienced mother, could tell something was wrong. For just a second before they took him away in the special equipment, they let me hold my son. And I looked down on him and I saw that he was perfect and beautiful. And then, out of nowhere, for no reason, my very next thought were of the men who had hurt me when I was a little girl. And I realized for the first time that they had been perfect and beautiful too. And someone else had turned them to monsters. And who better than me anyway to understand to have compassion for what must have been done to break those babies. And it was in compassion where I was set free. It continues to be compassion where I am set free. If someone has harmed me, if someone has harmed you, guaranteed something went terribly wrong in their life they did not want or deserve. And more is on us. I'm the one who got the gift of the 12 steps. More is required of me. More forgiveness, more kindness, more bridge building. That's all right. I can do that. For many, many fourth steps, way after freedom and peace and compassion for my mother, the men, all of it. What kept showing up on my first column was that bystanders. I just kept writing, why didn't anybody help us? And even after a while, there was no more feeling. I just wanted to put a check on it. You know what I mean? I just wanted to work it through and just set it down. But I just couldn't. I was, why didn't anybody help us? And then after many, many four steps, but that kept showing up, I finally realized, you know what? I don't know. (laughs) Here's what I do know. I will never be a bystander. And that's where I was set free for that. I'm a mandated reporter in the state of Illinois. I have faced down some terrifying, big, and angry men. And it's not that I'm all brave, but I will stand there because I will not, I will not have a child grow up anywhere in my line of sight that will grow up and ask themselves, why didn't anybody help us? I have a big life in AA. I got a big, I got a big life outside of AA. I'm a singer in a rock and roll band. And the bosser arounder of the band, too, and, which is the best part. It's because I own the equipment. But anyway. <laughs> I'm in my 12th year as a community organizer in the elementary schools in my little town. And what I do is I find little kids who are falling off the face of the earth. Man, I, I find the little kids who don't have a grown-up in their life. Or if they do, it is the wrong one. And someone has got to stand that gap. And I find uh, those little kids and I bring them in my program and then I go out into the community and I give presentations or talk to one-on-one or big groups or whatever to try to find people who will be mentors for those kiddos, who will show up for those kiddos' life once a week from the time they're in third grade till they graduate high school. In my program, I have the most kids in my program, and my colleagues who do this in other schools say, how do you find so many kids for your program? They don't know. I got a superpower. When I said I was a little girl, I wandered the streets after my, you know, that dash of my mom's drinking. I said I, you know, my hair was matted and I was dirty, and I smelled what it smelled like was cat urine. It's the smell of poverty. And to this day, when I'm looking for another little kiddo, I walk down the hallways of the elementary school and inhale. (laughs) 
and I find him every time and I realize not really that long ago that I approach him kind of the same way I approach a newcomer like not exactly but kind of it what I do the first thing I do when I find you and I'm about to meet one is I get down to their level language of the heart eyeball to eyeball and then I don't even know how I know to do this next part, but I touch their little faces. I touch their little cheeks, and I, like I pretend they have something. They're like their hair's in the way. And that's when I have them. And I know them. I know them. I can see them as I'm walking up to them. They're scanning me, safe or danger, safe or danger. I used to do the scan. And once I touch them, they're mine, man. And I got a hundred kind of active defects, but I am fierce. <laughs> Two hundred kids so far because God has taken my dark past my dark past and made it into my greatest possession and I always say the same words to them I say oh I'm so glad I found you and that's how we go the oldest son that I had the one that was born not breathing he turned to me when he was 12 years old and he said Mom, I'm afraid all the time, and I don't know why. I just don't know better words to sum us up before we find our first liquid higher power. He had been beautiful, funny. He went away to college where he met the liquid demon and he is none of those things anymore. And he hates himself. And he thinks he's using the substances and the booze to treat his terror, but it's making it worse. And it looks to me to be turning into some kind of psychosis. And my job is to keep the bridge built. So I don't talk about his drinking unless he wants to talk about it. I talk about Netflix shows, and he seems to like that. <laughs> but I want to talk about his drinking, but my job is to keep the bridge built. And recently, I'm starting to walk toward a place with that. At the moment of his birth when I felt that perfect beauty of my grandmother and my friend Craig and the place they came to us from. And if I felt it, he felt it too. And who am I to hold him from that? You can see I'm not doing that perfectly. But God blesses the try. There's a large group home uh, system in my little town uh, for kids who've been taken away from their parents because their parents are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And my sponsee started sponsoring a 16-year-old in this group home. And uh, my sponsee told me once, uh, one day, that th my grand sponsee was about to be in a band performance at the local high school. Now, let me just say real quick, one other thing about the, after the dash of my mom's drinking, it's always, as a little girl, I, you know, I'd be like little chorus things, and, you know, nobody was there, and, you know, I'd be 
on the volleyball team, you know, nobody was there. I, I just remember looking, looking up and she wasn't there and I learned quickly, don't even look, don't even look. Because it was worse somehow if they saw that I saw or something. So my grand sponsor is going to be in, uh, my Kleenex is failing, but I haven't worn it. Lucky you. But, uh, <laughs> um, so my sponsee said that her little, uh, little sponsee was going to be a band performance at the high school. I said, oh, my God, we're going. It's starting, like, almost now. She goes, we're, we're going? I said, yes. So we jump in the car, and we rush down there, and, and we, we walk. The, 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 band, the orchestra was on the floor of the gym, and, and the parents, the people watching, were on the risers. And, and we walk in the door, and we came in the wrong door, and there's, like, 50 huge people in our place. If we can get to the far side, I can see her back way down there. If we can get to the far side just in time, if she can look up in just the right way, she'll see us there. Now just think of that math. Who in the universe would know but me? Who would know? Who did God place? The one who knew, that's all. So we opened the door, and those, all those people in the way, and my sponsee said, you think we can make it? I said, hold my latte. And, <laughs> and I am pushing people, and I'm saying I'm sorry, but I am not sorry. And I get to the end, and I mean, the, the conductor's already picked up his baton, and I know if she looks up and sees us, you know, we have a second, we have a second. So I rudely call out her name, and she looks up, and her face, her face, Many times I've wondered, because we don't know what the fourth dimension is. We can't know what it is. What if the beautiful words our literature says that pain is the price of admission? What if those kind of words, what if sometimes my pain is the price of somebody else's admission? Would I pay? Yeah, I'd pay. For her, that face when she saw someone there. One time I was speaking in Louisiana, which anytime you go in Louisiana, it's like somewhere in Louisiana. Like that's always, I don't know why that is. But. <laughs> and I usually tell the story of Pat. I usually tell the story of my PTSD and that I have a, um, a, an unusual uh, knowledge of war and battle. So I'm in the thank you line and um, a soldier came up and asked me, he could talk to me, and so I left the thank you line when it was over, and I got to hear the secrets of a soldier. Me. Dumb girl, throwaway girl, a smelly girl with fake blonde hair from the valley, and that's some God math, is it not? Would I pay? Yes, I'd pay. I'm going to close pretty soon. Who was it that used to say, I just say that to give you hope? Who used to say that? <laughs> or Arizona, he used to say oh, Sharon said she just wrote it down. <laughs> Stealing my stuff. When we first went down to, uh, into lockdown, the first week that the country, that the world locked down, my friend Mike McKay, who is a taper, he tapes conferences in um, St. Louis, he reached out to me, I mean, not even a week in lockdown, and he said, hey, there's this Zoom format. I think we could probably put a, a conference on Zoom. He said, will you take one of the steps and will you fi find the other speakers for me? I said, yeah, and yeah, and that was the first Corona conference. 
maxed out at 1,000 people. We had six more corona conferences, multiple around the world conferences, where the first speaker would last 24 hours. The first speaker um, would always be uh, gotten by our friend in Australia, um, somewhere in the Eastern Hemisphere, um, and it would follow one hour working west through until it crossed the entire world of AA speakers. Who knew we could change so fast? Unless our lives were on the line. Mike died. His lungs were very compromised, and he got COVID. And um, one of the conferences I'm on the committee for is the Southern States Women's Conference. It doesn't matter in January, and that's where we got the word that he had died. And I literally fell to my knees because he was my brother. <sighs> But shoulder to shoulder, I had a ton of sponsees and grand sponsees, and they were there, I mean, actually surrounding me. It was so sweet. Some of them could just get one hand in and pet my hair. <laughs> love is love is love is love. And I'm a long griever, but that's all right, man. Mike deserves that. It's all right. I really am going to close pretty soon. <laughs> Many of us have problems with our mother, and it's always like the first thing that goes on the first column of the first step. So I'm going to tell you how I forgave my mother is this. Like I told you, she had been beaten and raped by my father for 17 years. And when he left, he took all the money. And she was left with five hungry children and a famous last name and a lot of vodka. The night I woke her up to help me, and she didn't help me. Just think of that, man. Think of the shoes she was standing in. You give me a few more years of hard drinking, I could have done the same. And that's how I forgave her. Alcohol is a power greater than we are. And it was a power greater than her love, than her wishes, just like it was that same power for me, just like it's that same power for you. I know the day is coming when my grandmother will return for me. And on that great day, I imagine she will take me by my hand and lead me to greet the God of our ancestors. And in that moment, there is only one thing I hope for, that the God of my understanding will lean forward and touch me on my cheek and say, well done, daughter. You were so brave. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.